Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is the third in our series that I've entitled Frustration, Failure, and Faith, Trusting God in Trying Times. What we've been doing and what we continue to do is to look at uh, some selected biblical characters and uh, just see what we can discover about their lives, about the frustrations that they faced, um, how they... uh, failed at times, how they uh, exhibited faith at times, and we want to try to learn from them. Today we're going to uh, look at the character Jacob, a very familiar character, and I've entitled our, our study, Jacob, when everything seems to be against us. You know, we all have days when it seems as if nothing seems to go right, and the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months, and the months turn into years, and it was sort of that way for Jacob. At the time that our story opens in Genesis chapter 42, Joseph is about 38 or 39 years old, and that would make Jacob around 128 to 130 years old. Remember that the word frustrate means to cause to have no uh, no effect or to prevent from achieving a goal or gratifying a desire. The psalmist talked about this in Psalm 13 verses 1 and 2 when he cried out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart. Notice, uh, as the psalmist says this, he's saying to God, it's, it's as if you are willfully dodging me. Uh, what, uh, what's what's going to happen? I don't understand what's going on. And we kind of see that in the life of Jacob uh, in Genesis chapter 42. But before we uh, look there, let's, uh, let's just talk about the, the background that brings us to Genesis chapter 42 because, you know, it's not the, not the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's that load that's on there before the straw ever arrives. In Genesis chapter 27, We see the early days, the early years in Beersheba where Jacob grew up and of course he grew up under a under an umbrella of family favoritism. Um, Isaac, his dad, favored Esau. His mom, Rebecca, favored him. And uh, there was just a lot of uh, a lot of controversy in the family at that time. There was deceit and death threats. Remember that uh, Jacob, in collusion with his mother Rebecca, um, wound up stealing the birthright and the blessing from uh, from Esau. Of course, this was all in God's plan. Now, mind you, God does not stir us up to do evil things, but God will use the evil that we do to accomplish His own purposes. And we'll see that here as we uh, as we continue our way through this. But the hostility uh, because of this stolen birthright and the stolen blessing was so great between Esau and Jacob that Rebekah insisted that uh, Jacob um, go north to Haran where her 
brother lived in order uh, under the under the guise of finding a wife and of course he did find a wife he he found two wives and two concubines while he was there but the truth is that the guise was just to get him out of the house and get him out of the way because Esau planned to kill him so uh, he, uh, Jacob went to Haran, spent uh, 20 years there. Now Haran is about 500 miles to the northeast. And while he was there, uh, as I mentioned just a moment ago, he, uh, he accumulated two wives, uh, Leah and Rachel. Rachel was his favorite wife. Uh, two concubines. And also, um, while he was there in Haran, uh, 11 sons and one daughter. Now, subsequently, there would be another son who would be born on the way on the way back. But there were all kind of problems with Rebecca's brother Laban, who, of course, was not only Jacob's uncle, but also came to be Jacob's father-in-law. There was a lot of deceiving and being deceived. Laban took advantage of him, which is rather ironic because it was uh, Jacob who had taken advantage of uh, of Esau. But Laban took advantage of him for 20 years and soon after Joseph's birth there in Haran, that was when Jacob and the family fled. And they made their long trip back. And on their way back, they were threatened by Laban. Laban pursued them, and yet they were protected by God. So, so think about it. And again, we're talking about the growing load, just the favoritism that uh, that uh, Jacob had experienced, and the fear that he had experienced, not only from his brother Esau, but now from his father-in-law Laban. And uh, and then, of course, you get to that point where uh, Jacob gets word that his his brother, whom he has not seen uh, for 20 years, Esau, is headed north to meet him because Esau understands he's coming back to the land. And Esau's coming with 400 men with him. And, of course, Jacob simply assumes that, uh, that Esau has evil designs in mind against not only him but also his family. And of course, it's uh, it's at the uh, at the Brook Peniel where he's alone in the darkness, and the angel of God grabs him, and there's a wrestling match that goes on. And his uh, eventually at daybreak, the uh, the angel puts his hip out of joint, and and Jacob walks with a limp for the rest of his life. Uh, he he met uh, Esau, and Esau he discovered had no. Uh, terrible designs against him. In fact, uh, Esau wanted to do nice things for him, and yet uh, uh, Jacob just didn't trust him, and he was afraid. He lied to Esau, and instead of going south to Esau's house, as he said he was going to, he just turned due west and went into the land of Canaan, and then and following that, there was an incident at Shechem in which his daughter Dinah, that is um, Jacob's daughter Dinah, was raped. Jacob did nothing about that. And so Dinah's, two of Dinah's brothers, uh, Levi and Simeon, decided they would do something about it. And of course, they, uh, they killed every male in town. 
and uh, where where the rape had happened, including the rapist and the rapist family. And uh, as a result of that, Jacob was afraid because he was afraid that uh, the the people in the surrounding area would want to avenge their deaths. And so he fled again and made his way farther south. And during all of that time, there were a number of uh, losses, important losses that he experienced. The death of Deborah, who was Rebecca's nurse. She had apparently gone with him, so that was a connection to his mother. Uh, Deborah died. Then there was the death of Rachel, his favorite wife, uh, uh, who died in childbirth, uh, giving birth to uh, the one who came to be known as Benjamin. As she died, she named she named the child uh, Ben Onai, which means son of my sorrow. But uh, apparently, Jacob didn't care about him being stuck with that kind of moniker, and so he changed his name from Ben Onai, son of my sorrow, to Benjamin, the son of my right hand, and then. Uh, after that, uh, Isaac, his uh, Jacob's dad, died as well. Once he got back uh, home to Canaan, down and the uh, around the area of uh, of. Uh, of Hebron, there was more favoritism and sibling rivalry that that went on in his in Jacob's own family. Jacob's favorite was uh, was Joseph, particularly since Rachel was dead. That was the real link. I mean, obviously he still had Benjamin, but Joseph was his favorite. That was the firstborn of Rachel, and of course the the other brothers, uh, the other half brothers because they had they had the same dad but different moms uh, resented that and eventually they uh, they saw to it that Jacob was sold into slavery and uh, and and of course they lied to dad and dad thought that uh, that Joseph was dead uh, when in fact he had been sold into slavery by his ten older brothers. Uh, there came a famine in the land. So, so notice, and the point that I'm making, and I don't mean to belabor this, but the point is is that all these things are just happening and they're just piling on Jacob time after time after time. So there's this, there's, there's finally there's this famine that occurs and, uh, and it's a threat to his family, it's a threat to his livestock, and uh, and that's that brings us to uh, what we're going to talk about today, where Jacob makes the statement that everything is against me, and what he's going to discover is that was not uh, that was not true at all. Now. Remember that uh, during all of this time, uh, when uh, when the famine finally did occur, that was uh, by then Joseph had uh, had finished his imprisonment. He had been promoted uh, to uh, governor or chief operations officer or whatever you want to call him down in Egypt through an interesting, miraculous chain of events, and. As a result of that, uh, for the previous seven years, uh, Jacob had been administering uh, the government and had been accumulating all kinds of food so that uh, during the seven years of famine that would follow, uh, Egypt would not, uh, would not succumb to the famine. And Jacob hears about that, and he knows that there's food down in uh, in Egypt to be had, and so he sends the ten older brothers down there to buy food. Now, uh, he refused to send Benjamin because Benjamin was the only thing he had left 
that reminded him of Rachel and he had become very overprotective. Uh, uh, obviously, Benjamin is Rachel's only surviving son. It reminded him of that connection to Rachel. Uh, and so we pick up the uh, we pick up the story here in Genesis chapter forty two. Uh, beginning at verse 3. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Now again, remember, he's just he's overprotective. Rachel's dead. Uh, he, is, he believes that Joseph is dead. He doesn't realize that Joseph is the one who's going to be selling the grain. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And remember, that was one of the uh, that was one of the things that really had ticked the brothers off. That when Joseph was younger, back when he was old, around seventeen years old, uh, he had these dreams that uh, that his brothers and even his dad would come and bow down before him, and um, and. Unfortunately, as a 17-year-old, he he talked about that to his brothers, and his brothers just became more infuriated, and that was for them the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And of course, that's when they decided, well, we're going to get rid of him. So here they are fulfilling that prophetic dream that, uh, that Joseph had had of bowing down before him. And it says in verse 8, And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. In fact, remember, uh, Joseph is not known as Joseph in Egypt. He's known as Zaphonath Paneah. That's his Egyptian name. And of course, uh, I'm sure they didn't, uh, the brothers probably didn't try to make a lot of eye contact with this really important person in Egypt. They were just, uh, they just were there to buy grain. It says uh, in verse 9, And he said to them, You are spies. Now he accused them of spying. Remember, that's what they accused Joseph years earlier of doing. He said, Dad sent you here to spy on us, and you just report all this stuff about us, and we're tired of that. So he accused them of spying. He put them all in prison for three days. And then in verse 18, it says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God, if you are honest men. See, they had been proclaiming their honesty. They talked about who their dad was, and they talked about they had a brother who had been lost. And of course, Joseph knew that, that they were talking about him. But of course, they didn't realize that. And, and they talked about this brother that they still had down in the land of Canaan. Well, of course, that's going to pique Joseph's interest because if they had treated Joseph this way, good grief, or what, are they, what have they done to Benjamin? Is, is he really still alive? You, how do you trust these ten guys? They, they lie all the time anyway. So that was sort of what Joseph was trying to find out. It says, On the third day Joseph said to them, Do this and you'll live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you're in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. And then notice verse 24, And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Now notice, this is what they do a lot of times 
um, still today. When you want to ensure that somebody's going to come back or somebody's going to do what you want them to, you take a hostage. So he let the uh, he let the nine of them go, and he took Simeon as a hostage. And you have to ask yourself, well, why didn't he take Reuben? Well, in the course of the conversation, remember one of the things, and if you've read the story, you'll recall this. Remember that uh, Joseph had an interpreter there. Now, he could understand Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever these uh, the, the brothers were speaking. So he could understand every word that they said. Uh, and so he overheard their conversation that they were having among them. And one of the things that Reuben had said, he said, look, I told you not to do this all these years ago. Not to do this. In fact, Reuben had wanted to restore Joseph to his father, uh, Jacob, in order to, uh, to get back into Jacob's good graces. And uh, so apparently that's, uh, perhaps that's the reason that, uh, that Reuben was not the, uh, the, the hostage that was taken. But anyway, he says he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. That, that must have really unsettled them. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. So notice, don't, don't think harshly of Joseph. He's concerned about... What what have these ten guys done with my with my younger brother? What are these ten, how are these ten guys treating my dad? I don't know whether to believe these guys or not. So, but Joseph does show generosity here, and he has a plan, and God is going to use Joseph's generosity and Joseph's provision to uh, prick the consciences of these brothers. It says in verse 29, When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, Hey, we're honest men. We've never been spies. We're twelve brothers, son of our father. One is no more. That's, of course, a reference to to, uh, to Joseph. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, speaking of uh, the governor, Governor Joseph. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. In other words, if you want your brother Simeon back and if you want to ever buy more grain here, you're going to have to bring that young that younger kid up here that you were taught, that youngest son up here, and I'm going to have to see As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Why? Why were they afraid? Because it was going to look like they were thieves. That's why that they had uh, they had taken that grain and not paid for it. And Jacob, their father, said to him, "You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more." So he assumes Joseph is dead, and Simeon is no more. Notice Jacob just wrote Simeon off. And now you would take Benjamin all 
all this has come against me. Notice Jacob is just filled with self pity. And now again, remember, he's just he at this point he's about 128 to 130 years old, and from the time he's been a young man, there's just been all kinds of things going on in his life, and it's just been one thing after another, after another, after another, after another. And even though he had that experience at Peniel. Uh, with with the angel who put his hip out of joint, and his name was changed from Jacob to Jacob the deceiver to Israel, uh, one who uh, wrestles with God, one, uh, the prince of God. Uh, still, God referred to him more often than not as uh, as Jacob. So. Uh, Jacob is in the process of changing, but it's very difficult for for Jacob to do so. He says, all this has come against me, and everything is against me. I just can't believe it. My son shall not go down with you. Notice, you're not taking Benjamin. His brother's dead, and he's the only one left. Notice, how how would you feel if you were one of those ten older brothers? He's the only one that's left. Well, no, you got you got ten others, Dad. But when he says the only one, he's saying the only one of my favorite wife, Rachel. He's the only one. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you're to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow down to Sheol, down, that is down to the grave. So you just you look at Jacob's perspective, and he, he's just saying, "Look, everything is against me. Why is all this happening to me?" But you know, as as believers, we read Romans eight twenty eight, and and we know that the scriptures say that God causes, not it just happens or God allows, but God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, it doesn't say that all things that come our way, all things that God sends our way, are good. But it says God uses all of those things to accomplish good in our lives. And we're going to see that for Jacob. Let's keep reading. Genesis 43. Now, the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. You know, we're running out of groceries. You need to go back and get some more. But Judah said to him, Hey, the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face again unless your brother's with you. And so Judah said, Look, we'd be glad to go back and buy some more grain, but the man said he's not going to give us the time of day if we don't come down there and our youngest brother, Benjamin, is with us. And notice Jacob's response to that. And here it says Israel, which is the name that God had changed it to. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Notice notice the struggle that he's having here. There are the demands of another person that's being made on him. And he can't do anything about that. And now those demands are so great and the, the circumstances are so great against him. He's got to have food. He's got to have food for his family. He's got to have food for his livestock. He can't change the fact that there's a famine. And he can't change anything about the demands that are being made on him. If you want to buy food, you've got to meet this requirement. And so his frustration level is tremendous. Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? 
And of course, uh, Judah goes on to say, "Hey, how will we to know? You know, the guy's asking us questions. We're just answering these questions. How will we to know he's going to say you, you're going to have to bring your brother down here? Because they remember they had no clue that this is really Joseph they were talking to, and they had no clue that the reason that this this governor of Egypt was so interested was because he wanted to be sure that, that Benjamin's okay." Then their father Israel said to them, Well, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. Notice we're going, we may, may need to bribe him. Take also your brother, uh, that's Benjamin, and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. El is God. Uh, Almighty is Shaddai. It comes from the root word Shad, which means chest or breast, and it has the idea of the of strength, the the pectoral muscles. It also has the idea of consolation and comfort, as one is held to to the breast of someone else, uh, one who will uh, who will protect them. Uh, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. Notice he doesn't even mention Simeon by name. Uh, as, and as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them. Now, why would they take double the money? That's right, because their original money had been returned, and just in case it was some sort of mistake. Uh, they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Now, what happens when they're down there? Well, there's a confrontation that takes place and ultimately there is a reconciliation that takes place. Uh, remember one of the things that Joseph did was the uh, uh, first thing he did was return Simeon to them. So that should have relieved these, uh, these uh, nine brothers and Benjamin who, who was along with them. That, sh- that should have settled the nerves just a little bit. And then the next thing he did was he sent word to them. He said, look, he said, uh, the, the money thing was, was, was not a mistake. I returned your money on purpose. You don't owe me anything. So they're feeling better about that. And and then, uh, and then he had a, set a big dinner for them. And one of the things he did at the dinner, which is really interesting. Now, this is not part of the study. I don't think it was part of your reading either. But one of the things that he did at the dinner was he had three tables. One for Joseph by himself and then one for the Egyptians where they ate by themselves because they, they didn't like to associate with shepherds. And then uh, a table for the, uh, for the brothers. And these uh, these ten brothers, and they were they were lined up in uh, in chronological order. And when the food was served, uh, Benjamin, the youngest, was given five times as much as anybody else. Now, now notice what what Joseph's doing is he is setting up the brothers because here's here's a chance in which not only his dad been showing favoritism toward Benjamin all these years since Joseph has been purportedly dead. But now, uh, here's this governor of the land who, who really doesn't know him at all, and he's showing favoritism toward this kid. So he's setting him up because if the brothers are going to be antagonistic toward Benjamin, this ought to push him over the edge. And remember what he does then is when they leave the next morning, he puts their money, gives them their, their money back again, and then he, takes, he has his silver cup put in the sack of Benjamin. 
and he sends them on their way. And they get down the road just a little ways, and then and then Joseph tells his trusty folks, he says, now you go after them and accuse them of stealing. And of course they start opening the bags, and they, they start with the oldest, old Reuben. And uh, they open the bags, and they dump out the grain, probably on something like a tarp, and they go through it. Well, there's no, there's no cup there. And, you know, Reuben, and uh, Simeon, and Levi, and Judah, and all the way down the line, and they finally get to that youngest brother Benjamin and when they dump out his bag there's that silver cup well now when they bring them back uh, you know the brothers say well I guess we're going to be your uh, I guess we're going to be your slaves from now on and I mean they they just lamenting saying you know God is really getting us for what we did all those years ago when we when we sold our brother Joseph into slavery now remember, Joseph is able to understand all of this. And so, he's, he can understand them. They don't realize that he understands their language. And so, Joseph tells them this. He says, no, I'm not going to take all of you slaves. What I'm going to do is I'm going to keep, keep your, youngest, your youngest brother. And the rest of you can go free. And notice, this was a test. Will they abandon their youngest brother? Yep, brother, the way that they had abandoned him, and it's of course at this point that Judah comes up, and it's the it's the most I think one of the most beautiful speeches in all of the Old Testament, where Judah says, "It's going to break our father's heart if this kid doesn't come back. Let me take his place," and Judah offers to take the place of Benjamin, and it's a it's a great picture of substitution. Because, of course, the Lord Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And He ultimately is the substitute. He was the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of all of God's people. And so here's Judah willing to take the place. And at that point, there's this tremendous reconciliation as, as Joseph, as Zaphonath Paneah reveals his true identity, that he is Joseph, their long-lost brother. And there's this tremendous reconciliation and then we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 45. It says, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house. What report is that? Well, that's the report of the reconciliation, that it was party time there among the brothers. They, they heard the report, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Well, of course it did, because Pharaoh was in great debt to Joseph for saving the land of Egypt. And so if Joseph was happy... Pharaoh was happy for Joseph. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. Remember, he's going to move them into Goshen, uh, which was uh, the part of Egypt where it would be easy for them to grow crops. It would be a great place to raise livestock. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods. In other words, just leave all your stuff down there. You're going to get the best of the land when you get here to, to Egypt. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. 
Now, why did they do that? Why did Pharaoh do that? Why would Pharaoh do this? There was only one reason. He did it for Joseph's sake. Why is God generous to us? Is it because we deserve it? Is it because we've earned it? Is it because we're such likable people, we human beings? None of those reasons. God is gracious to us. God is merciful to us for one reason and one reason only. And that's for the sake of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of all of God's people. He did it for Jesus' sake. And so the immigration takes place. The, 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 the wagons make their way down to Canaan. And the, the, uh, Jacob learns what's going on, learns that Joseph is still alive. I am going to see my boy Joseph. Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. Remember, they're living in Hebron, so they're going southwest. Beersheba is a little settlement that's right down on the edge of the, the Negev, there, the, the desert. And they'd come to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Notice he spoke to Israel, but when he spoke to him, he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. For notice, notice, now what's the inference here? Well, the inference here is that he was afraid, that, that Jacob was afraid. He was a fearful man. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why not? For there... It's in Egypt that I will make you into a great nation. Now remember, they're going to face some persecution. And uh, it was going to be some difficult times for about 400 years. And because this Pharaoh is going to die and eventually another Pharaoh is going to come along who didn't know anything about Joseph and he's going to be threatened by all these Hebrews down there. Things are going to get rough. But during that time, that little family that was around 70 to 75 people was going to grow into a a nation of probably close to about 2 million people. I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you. Notice, uh, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. And my presence will be with you. I'm going to be with you. I'll go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You're gonna, when you die, Joseph is going to be there with you. And he's the one who's going to close your eyes. Notice, there, there's, there's perfect provision in every way. Protection, provision, God's presence. He's promised him everything. You don't need to be afraid. Everything is not against you. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba... The sons of Israel uh, carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. As I mentioned earlier, there were around 70 people or so. Remember, God had promised in the Abrahamic covenant, God had promised three things. He had promised land and offspring and blessing. Well, 70 or 75 people 
are not enough people to settle a land the size of Canaan. So what is God doing? God is putting them in a situation, and of course uh, a situation in which uh, the the residents of the land, the Egyptians, didn't like to necessarily hang out with shepherds. And so there's not going to be as much intermarriage as there would have been if they had been living in the land of Canaan, just this little family. And so this this family is going to grow into a huge nation. And then eventually under the leadership of Moses, God will bring them up to the land and then when Moses dies, it will be Joshua who will lead them into the land. Uh, in John chapter 1, I believe it is, John's Gospel, chapter 1, it says the law came by Moses, but grace and truth comes by Jesus Christ. It's Moses, it's the law that can bring you to the point of repentance, but the law can't save you. You've got to have Joshua, you've got to have Jesus to take you over Jordan into the land. The law can't save you. All the law can do is show you where you're wrong, show you your sin. All it can do is convict you. All it can do is condemn you. It takes Jesus to bring you into the land, to bring you, uh, to bring forgiveness. Now, notice, notice what's going on. Uh, Genesis chapter 47, verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. That, now, there's a, there's a, uh, a reunion of, of uh, Jacob and his son Joseph, and it's a tearful reunion. And then Joseph wants to bring Dad to meet Pharaoh. And he says he stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, isn't that amazing? Because it's normally it's the greater who blesses the the lesser, and in this case, Jacob is the greater because he's greater spiritually than the uh, than Pharaoh, who is uh, who is apparently an unbeliever. Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Jacob, "How many are the days of the years of your life?" And Jacob said to Pharaoh, "The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years." Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Notice, it, it, it had been a tough road to hoe, is what he's saying. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. In other words, I'm 130 now, but my dad and my granddad, Isaac and Abraham, both lived to be uh, uh, older and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land as Pharaoh had commanded. Uh, notice in the left-hand column of your notes, there is a, uh, uh, there's a, there's a, a section there, Roman numeral 4, part B, 2. Uh, we, we see, we just read the testimony uh, that uh, Jacob gave before Pharaoh. But notice the testimony that, uh, that, that Jacob gives to Joseph. And this uh, is from Genesis 48. It's in the left-hand column of your notes. It's, and this happened some years later. I think, uh, as I recall, Joseph, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob lived to be, I think it was 147 years. Yeah, 147. He lived 17 years in, uh, in Egypt. It says, Now the eyes 
of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near. Now this is, this is when Joseph is introducing or bringing his two sons who've been born to him. Remember, uh, let me back up just a second. During this time that Joseph has been governor of Egypt, he has married uh, uh, the daughter of the priest of On down there and they have had two sons. Uh, Manasseh and Ephraim. Uh, Manasseh means uh, forgetfulness and Ephraim means uh, fruitfulness. God has made me forget all the bad stuff that's happened to me. God's made me fruitful in the land of my former captivity. And so Joseph is bringing his sons to Jacob and his his dad Jacob in his waning years bringing these boys to their grandfather's knee so that uh, so that Jacob will bless them. <clears throat> now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he couldn't see. So Joseph brought them, that's his two sons, near him and he kissed them and embraced them and Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold God has let me see your offspring also. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim who was the younger and his left hand on the head of Manasseh crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Notice there's a there's just it's it's as if the regrets now are gone. You know, he recognizes. Notice the things that that he says here. And incidentally, uh, the there's a passage in Hebrews chapter eleven. It was not part of your reading, but in Hebrews chapter eleven, uh, there's one verse that. And now remember, Hebrews eleven is the uh, is sort of the heroes of the faith. In Hebrews eleven, there's one verse about Jacob. And it says in verse 21, By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Notice it's not till he gets to the end of his life that God points out the fact that he's really become a real man of faith. He's just, he's just struggled all his life. And yet, when he looks back on his life, he's, notice what he said. He said, The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. You know, there's an old saying, hindsight's twenty twenty, And we can look back and we, we see the footprints behind us. And you know, there's that old... There's that old uh, I don't know whether it's a saying or what it was. The first time I ever saw it was in in some sort of greeting card, but but it it was about the uh, you know there are two sets of footprints on the beach, and then all of a sudden there's one set of footprints, and the guy says, "Lord, where were you?" And he says, "Well, where there's only one set of footprints, that's where I was carrying you." And essentially, that's sort of the point that uh, that Jacob has come to in all of this. That that God has been his shepherd. He's been his guide. He's provided for him. He's protected him. But it took a lifetime for him to get to this point where he recognizes that he has come from schemer to believer in God's plan. But it has taken him a lifetime to get there.
And very often it works the same way with us. And everything is not against us. God, again, God causes all things to work together for us. For That is for those who love God and for those who are called according to His purpose. Let's, let's look at the conclusion section here for just a, a few, few moments. First of all, uh, regarding a popular axiom, it's never the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's the accumulating load. Uh, we've, we've talked about that. And what about faith in God in the face of frustration? Notice what Paul wrote in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition and thanksgiving present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard or garrison, put up a guard around your hearts and around your minds in Christ Jesus. And Peter says essentially the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 7 where he says, Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. You don't need to carry the anxiety. Again, the, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, even, even when it looked like everything was against me, now I realize that God was looking after me even on those days. Even when Joseph, I thought, was dead. Even when my wife Rachel died. God has made perfect provision. God has protected me. God has guided me. Second point, it simply is not true that everything is against the true believer in Christ. God is for His people. Using even the overwhelming circumstances of life and the demands of seemingly unreasonable people to accomplish His will. Let's read this passage from Romans 8:28 through 39. And it's just a couple of segments of that. And one I've already quoted two or three times. And we know that for those who love God, <clears throat> notice this is not everybody, but for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Notice, notice what Paul is arguing. He said, hey, if God's given us the best, why would God turn into a chiseler now and try to hold out on something that's not the best? He's already given the best that He's got. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He said, hey, there's not a court that's higher than God. When God declares something is so, when He declares a person justified, that is, declared righteous through faith in Christ, nobody's going to change that. There's no higher justice than the throne of God in the universe. It's God who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Notice, Christ not only died for us, He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, 
or nakedness or danger or sword? And what's the answer? No, no, nothing can. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. You see all the the, the little swoosh, Nike swoosh. That's that's uh, the word that's used here, conqueror, uh, Nike. And uh, the word that's used here is huper nike. We are more than conquerors. We overwhelmingly conquer. How? Through Him who loved us. For, he goes on to say, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. That doesn't leave out anything. Will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? It means that in spite of the limited perspective that you and I have, that God is for His people. He is committed to transforming each one of His children into His own likeness. Now, it takes a lifetime to do so. And we'll never be like Him perfectly until we are with Him. And God will use even the adversities that we face to depend uh, deepen our dependence on Him. God is for His people. And He's for us not because we are worthy, but He is for us because of the, for the sake of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pharaoh was gracious to Jacob and his family, not because they deserved it, not because they earned it, not because they merited it, not because they were such nice people, not because they were such great shepherds, not because they were so good at livestock raising, they did it for one Pharaoh did it for one reason, one reason only, and that was for Joseph's sake. And what God does for us is for one reason and one reason only, and that's for the sake of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it is true that the believer does have three major foes the world system. That is the goals and the values that the world espouses. Looking out for number one, win through intimidation. And what the Bible says about that in 1 John 2 is do not love the world, that is the world system, or anything in the world system. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, that is again in the world system, everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, that doesn't come from the Father, but from the world system. The world system and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Notice the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. The desire to indulge. The desire to impress. The desire to possess. Those are the things that drive people. God says don't, don't be infatuated with those things. Three major foes. The first is the world system. Not, not the globe itself. For God so loved the world. He's talking about the world system. The second foe is that of the flesh, the sinful human human nature. Remember in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, there's a little uh, sin sampler in there. All these things. It just says, listen, there's nothing good about the sinful nature. God doesn't reform us. God puts that to death and He gives us a new nature, His own nature when we come 
to Him through faith in Christ. And then, of course, there's the devil, the evil one. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And we're to resist him steadfast in the faith, the Scriptures tell us. The tendency to want to be in control of circumstances and in control of uncooperative people. See, that's what Jacob was facing in our story today. He had no control over the circumstances. Famine, all these kind of things, over the things that were happening. He had no control over this governor who was making demands, these uncooperative people. This tendency to want to be in control of circumstances and uncooperative people is part of what it means to be a fallen, sinful human being, even if God already has mercifully saved us. And this determination on our part, that is to be in control ourselves, is never going to go away completely in this life. We're going to struggle with that until the day we come face to face with Jesus and stand in His presence. And then our new sin-free nature will be reunited with a sin-free body. A new body, a body like the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus, and these tendencies then will be gone completely. Notice, uh, let me let me read you something from uh, um, James Packer's book, Knowing God. This is a hymn that uh, John Newton wrote. Now I I don't know the tune to it, and that's just good. But even if I did, I wouldn't try to sing it. But the title of this hymn is "These Inward Trials." Now remember, John Newton is the same uh, same one who wrote "Amazing Grace." Listen up now. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. I hoped that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my request and by His love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with His own hand He seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt Thou pursue Thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. These tendencies that we have to want to be in control of everything, these tendencies can be a source of constant frustration or they can serve as a catalyst to depend upon God. As long as we feel as if we are in control, then we struggle with bearing all things and believing all things and hoping all things and enduring all things. But when we feel we're not in control, we feel like we're overwhelmed. That's why we need to trust in God. Praise be to God for His great mercy. Amen. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. 
For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.